Have you ever seen something in a theater that you just couldn't explain? Or have you ever thought about if dying really ain't that bad? And do you spend sleepless nights wondering exactly what happened to Natalie Wood that night on the boat? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then it's time for you to exit stage death. Exit Stage Death is the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. Releasing bi-weekly on Tuesday starting May 24th. So if you want to find out which Broadway house is the most haunted. Talk about what killed our favorite Broadway flops. And learn about the murderous path of Mama Rose that took Gypsy Rose Lee to stardom. It's time for Places, actors. Thank, Thank you, you places. places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back, serial killers, to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. Uh, today's episode is going to be epic because we are talking about a fantasy of epic proportions we're talking about three movies today let's see how much we can get in and to talk something so epic that is also a book adaptation i have one of our hosts from another certain pov podcast from circle of friendship i have anna greendrad feeney welcome anna to the show thank you for having me i'm so excited to talk about these formative films in my life (laughs) me too i love that we were going back and forth when you were just like can we do these and i went Sure, why the <laughs> fuck not? Let's do it. It's 2022. There's no holds barred at this point. Go big or go home. <laughs> so tell everyone at home who you are and a little bit about yourself. So my name is Anna. I am a the co-host of Circle of Friendship podcast on CPOV, but we have been on hiatus for about a year now because life got in the way unexpectedly. Um, I am also a writer. I'm a tarot reader. I just switched into UX UI design. So I'm a designer now. Uh, and I'm a former actor and aspiring filmmaker, which is how Lord of the Rings ties into all of this. That was a pretty uh, transformative experience in my life, that period of time when they were coming out. So um, I'm also like a huge K-pop fan. So I do a lot of um, projects related to that. I'm working on a tarot deck related to BTS. So it's very exciting. BTS tarot project. I love your BTS tarot deck. But <laughs> just as a casual K-pop fan myself, like super casual, I always, because uh, you do like Friday forecasts on your social media, yes. stuff like that. And I always love when the, the BTS cards pop up. I'm just like, oh. It's it's it just feels right. It just feels. Good. I have a Lord of the Rings deck, but it is so absolutely terrible that I did like a seventy nine part series on TikTok about why it's awful, and well, no one has made another one like well, another Lord of the Rings deck. I, I find there's so many like trendy tarot decks now because everyone's so into being like a witchy girl, like hot witchy girl. Something. Yeah, um, yeah. I say as like a faux witchy girl person myself. Oh sure. Uh, but like you know, it's also like the other day I forget where I was, and it was like a muggle store that had some tarot decks selling and I was just like but it was like labyrinth and nightmare before Christmas yeah I I was just like I was like okay I get it but it's also kind of like being able to buy sage at five below you know it's one of those things and it's like I get it I love that we're moving towards this openness uh because when I was a teenager uh you would have been literally lit on fire for having that in your store at the mall Mm -hmm. uh But so you kind of mentioned it. So today we are covering the Peter Jackson helmed Tolkien written Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, uh, We're going to, you know, today won't be a director's cut episode, but uh, (laughs) who knows how many episodes we'll have to do for this, but we're going to launch in. So I remember these also being 
insanely formative for me. I will say going into it, I had no idea they were a book series. I had no idea where the first one's going to end. And I remember turning around and going, what? It can't just, what is happening? Is there another one coming out? My friend was like, you're an asshole. There are two <laughs> more of these. The next one comes out next year. Calm down. And I went, we have to wait a whole year. Right. <laughs> and and that's just- the thing about that first movie was it was so good that despite being three hours long, when it ended, I was like, wait, no, no, I'm not waiting another year for this. Are you kidding me? Well, and really we had just gotten back into that swing of people really kind of being okay with a two hour, 45 minute, three hour movie. Cause we'd had Titanic in 97 and um, even like Phantom Menace was quite long when it came out mm-hmm. in 99. Um, I believe the first one of these came out in 2001. Yes. I believe. Yeah. yeah. That's correct. Um, and so it, you know, it was truly epic. Now back, you know, even into the early seventies, we, we, people were used to sitting through a three hour movie with an intermission, a four hour movie with an intermission, especially any of the old, like war movies or musicals. Mm -hmm. Uh, they preserved that intermission, uh, because they didn't make too many changes typically to the shows at that point. So yeah, but it's something I love about these and I'm sure we'll touch on it is even at a long part, these don't feel like three hours. And even if they do, I love living in this world so much that I never cared that they were. Right. And I knew it was a book series, but like, I hadn't read them. I'd read mm -hmm. the Hobbit. And then there was this weird phenomenon where like, the first movie came out and I was a purist. So I was like, I'm going to read the books before I watch Mm -hmm. the movies. And then the first book was nowhere to be found. Like everyone was reading it. It was gone. It was off the shelves. And for whatever reason, for that specific period of time, we found it later. We couldn't find my dad's copy of the first one either. Uh So it was just like, no, I guess I will not be, uh, I will not be reading the books first. I will be watching the movies, which I'm not mad about. Honestly, I loved the movies so much that like, Mm it shaped my love of the books even more, but, but yeah, I, I was, I was very mad at the time. Well, I remember the only way that I could find them was they were in my school library, but like they weren't in the public library. You couldn't find them at our local borders. I mean, cause this was also like, um, I believe the first Potter film had just come out. Yeah, it was like and about so, to around the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, was about, I, yeah, I believe they were like the same holiday season-ish mm-hmm. kind of deal. Um, and yeah, so it was like, we were getting into this idea of like adaptation on film again and everyone rushing to the bookstore to pick up books, which again, right. ultimately not a bad problem. And for Lord of the Rings, a, uh, you know, 60 year old franchise at that point, not a bad problem to have suddenly your books reselling out <laughs> 60 or 70 years after its initial release. Uh, so we're going to go back in time a little. We're going to do, where was young Anna when these movies came? came out how did how did you kind of discover them and what was your kind of fixation on them so I was huge into fantasy like I read like Redwall growing up and I'd and I'd, around the same time I was starting to read his dark materials and and all of like every book series that like a young fantasy obsessed uh nerd could possibly mm-hmm. could possibly want to to read and I had read The Hobbit. My mom read it to me on a train ride to Boston. Very cute um, together. But I was also a very sensitive kid. And my parents were, I was like, are there more? And they were like, yes. And you're going to wait about 10 years to read them. Like, 
They were like, we're not going down that rabbit hole of nightmares that you're about to have. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I didn't read them and I kind of forgot about, like, I, they were on my radar. I had a friend's brother who was, sorry, my cat. It's second. all right. We, we welcome all pets here. It's fine. <laughs> He's having issues this week. So yeah, my friend's brother had read them and like, had talked about them and he always had suggestions for me. So I was like, I was very aware of Lord of the Rings and that it existed and not much else. I just knew mm. like. I'd like the Hobbit. And then when the movies came out, they were huge. They were everywhere. I, I think at that point I'd started, I had started reading Harry Potter at that point. So I'd read Harry Potter. I'd read, I'd gotten into Tamara Pierce, which like I podcast on. And now here comes this other fantasy epic. Obviously I'm going to get into it. And, and when there was like the rivalry between like, are you a Harry Potter person or are you a Lord of the Rings person? Mm-hmm. I was firmly a Lord of the Rings person. Of like course. I was like, mm-hmm. listen, listen, let me tell you why these books and movies are better. And now I can stand by that. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but um, uh, so the movie came out. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to see it. I'm waiting to read the books. And the books were nowhere to be found. I could not find it. I I could find two and three. I could not find one literally anywhere. And so it reached this point where my mom was like, it's not going to be in theaters anymore. Like you have to go see Mm -hmm. it. And so we decided that we'd see it on Tolkien's birthday to like, like just to pay, to pay Mm -hmm. tribute since I couldn't read the books first. So, so uh, January 3rd. 2002 was when I first saw Fellowship of the Ring. I went with my seventh grade boyfriend. It's our first date because we were both nerds. Um, it was like one of our only dates because, you know, seventh grade. And I was completely obsessed. Like I was transfixed. I think we literally actually walked into the wrong theater and it was like the mirror of Galadriel scene. And he was like, wrong theater, wrong theater, spoilers, let's go. <laughs> so uh, three hours of just like, being completely immersed and I'd never seen like a good adaptation Mm -hmm. before really or like and very few had been made in general Mm -hmm. um but especially not to that caliber and coming out at the same time as Potter like the difference was stark Mm -hmm. in terms of of how much work had been put in to make this a good movie Mm -hmm. um so it was very uh it, it was it was like changed my life. I read all the books. I became completely obsessed. I made like all my friends around Lord of the Rings. I went on forums and I got really into filmmaking um, because of the behind the scenes, because that's the other thing about these movies that in addition to being a completely like never before seen adaptation, they also gave a never before seen look at how they were made. Other, Mm -hmm. other, other uh, DVDs would have like the same five clips recycled into Mm -hmm. the costumes and the characters and the, this Mm -hmm. section. And Peter Jackson was like, let me give you 15 documentaries about how I made these movies. So I had the extended editions. I had like, I watched everything that aired on TV. I finally recently tracked down this, like this, I don't remember which channel had done it. Some channel did like a looking at return of the King. Mm -hmm. And I remember a scene where one of the extras playing the Urukai was singing rainbow connection, playing his scimitar. And it literally took me 20 years of the internet, like being a thing to finally this year, track down that clip and be like, I didn't imagine it. It's real. It exists. That's so magic. I love that so much. So that's like, it just, it took over my life in like, I, I was, I was writing my name in Elvish and all my notebooks. And like, I have the, um, 
I have the dictionary or the textbook of like learning Elvish. I never did, but my uncle did the cover for it. So like I have a copy of David nice. Salas, um, um, the guy who like taught them how to speak it on the film. He lived in my hometown. And so I have a copy of his textbook on it because he taught classes on it. And, like, course, I just went, I, love that. I went hard, I went so hard. I mean, if you're going to go, go hard. But that was also right. like the nerddom of the time is like, if you oh, love yeah. something, you went hardcore because you're like, if people are going to make fun of me about this, fuck it. I'm going to love this. I literally recorded an episode last night about Sailor Moon and I was talking with my friend and I was like, I remember being bullied mercilessly for loving anime. And now it's so popular. It's so but cool. Like, but I love like part of me is like, oh, I'm so mad. But then part of me is also like, I love it because I can walk in every store and find like, amazing 90s anime merch so like that this is a very similar thing of like we started seeing people who normally wouldn't dabble into the side of like nerddom with these kind of adaptations start dabbling into it and it was a really cool thing and honestly I would argue that kind of the breadth of these films setting up um Potter a little bit but these three truly um set up people being willing to sit through large franchises and also like really set the tone for what would eventually be like the MCU, the DCEU, mm -hmm. and really set up to like set people up where they were willing to sit in a movie theater for three hours and stay for a credit scene and stay invested in something longer and get people into, you know, extended media, which, you know, is incredible. <laughs> right. And has like changed the landscape of television mm -hmm. and, and of film and of just everything. And I will say that like for, you know, no franchise is unflawed and these right. ones certainly have their flaws. But one of the things I love about them so much is that the care that was put into it, even if I disagree with the decision, they can back up why they made that decision yep. and they have. And that I really, really appreciate compared to, again, the franchise at the time was Potter and they'd say things mm -hmm. like, I don't know, I thought it'd be cool to put in a 20 minute dragon chase sequence. And it was like, great thanks i'm glad you thought it was cool and then jackson would be like here's the pacing reasons and the character mm -hmm. reasons why i had to make faramir be tempted by the ring and you're like all right i still may disagree with you but like yeah. i get it dude <laughs> he, he like peter jackson gives you that dramaturgy also because you can tell that peter jackson loved the source material so much so, because truly before this he'd made some absolute garbage <laughs> like real and after <laughs> and well and after i mean uh you know a lot of people are very polarized about the Hobbit films as well. Ugh, I have um, I have a whole soapbox about those, but um, you know, and so it's one of those things that it sometimes you just strike oil and and it literally burns bright. And this is one of those situations because I also immediately, like as soon as Return of the King came out, the buzz about like oh Jackson has to do the Hobbit films, like has to do the Hobbit mm -hmm. films, and then like it took like ten years for it to actually happen, and he got removed from the project, and they got put back on the project, and then and the lawsuit was going on, which is like my main yeah. thing is like I blame the lawsuit for the Hobbit movies. But that's I a agree. whole other yeah. thing. Well, and then you also have like the studio got too involved because the studio originally kind of let them do what they were going to do mm -hmm. um now they also i will they flat out revolutionized filmmaking in yes. so many ways um because we also hadn't thought about making multiple movies at the same time mm -hmm. but when you're literally building into the landscape of new zealand and altering it in a way that is just so beautiful and stunning you've got literally some huge names, but also mostly not huge names, but names who were going to be 
giant after this, right? Um, whether they worked a ton after or not, um, you know, it's you've got kind of a mixed bag of people who were popular but weren't, and like even Kate Blanchett had been working, but like she wasn't as massively popular as she was after this, right? Hugo Weaving, who had had a twenty, you know, twenty year career at this point, Liv Tyler as well. Um, you know, it's one of those things that this could have been. There weren't. Uh, there wasn't what I would call like huge star power behind this movie. Like right. they literally kind of wrapped it into they got like the story. They got like genre actors, mm-hmm. theater actors, and child actors, and then unknown names. But there wasn't, there weren't many people where it was like this is a blockbuster. Like Ian McKellen right. hadn't done X Men yet. He's huge, obviously theater wise. Mm-hmm. But but in terms of movies, Christopher Lee was big in like horror. Right. Like uh, oh, Kate Blanchett was big in like the Australian film scene, mm-hmm. but like not necessarily in Hollywood blockbusters. Elijah Wood was like the flipper kid, you know? He's right, like, absolutely. And she, like Sean Astin Sean was Astin. the Goonies kid. He was Rudy. Like, you know, right. there were these little things. I mean, and even, even Hugo Weaving, like the Matrix had just, I think, because Matrix was 99 or 2000. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Just so like that out. had like just come out, but you know, they had overlapped filming and things. Um, I mean, you know, and again, Liv Tyler hadn't, you know, Armageddon had come out in 98 but right like, wasn't like everyone saw it but it was not a good movie <laughs> right right so, you know it's one of those things that again they also had a ton of like british theater actors in this that uh so they could really focus on the craft without selling the star power of it mm-hmm. um i mean you also had like john reese davies who had a very long career as well and um, right but you know so it it was a huge gamble for something of this size and they didn't shoot it like a blockbuster movie, like no. changed as it went along. But the first movie, if you watch it, like from a filmmaking perspective, it's an indie horror film. Yeah. It is an indie suspense thriller. And that's how it's built. And that's how it's shot. And that's how the tension builds. And it's genius, but it would never, ever, ever happen today. Like ever. <laughs> absolutely. Like, absolutely. It couldn't. Well, I mean, and that's the thing is like, I didn't love the, I did not like suspense and horror, but I loved the feeling of, of fr- like what I felt watching Frodo being chased by the witch kings, mm-hmm. like those, ooh, and the shriek, like there's just, huh, huh. I, it's one of those things that like, I still get chills about so many aspects of this first film that even sometimes at like second and third film, I don't always get those feelings with, but like there is a grandeur that came with this that like even star wars hadn't delivered upon at this point and so there's just so much good about this now i'm gonna go into this saying i've read the first book i've (laughs) read some of the second book now something i've read the samarillion though i have read the same okay okay but i haven't read the hobbit i haven't read return of the king because i find Tolkien a little masturbatory and dry. Uh, dry because like for anyone who hasn't read uh, The Two Towers, there is literally about 30 pages describing the rolling hills of Rohan in the second chapter. And while it is beautiful, it's he did in like 30 pages what Jackson manages to do in a single Right. like roaming 20 second shot uh my favorite tolkien fact that i discovered when i went to hit the exhibit in new york mm-hmm. of all his writings is that like the reason two towers is the way it is and like frodo and sam spent the entire time walking is he literally calculated the stride of a hobbit and how far they could walk in a day and refused to make them go any faster 
he's a nerd. He's such a nerd. He was like, no, we will not get here any faster because the hobbits could not walk that fast. And I refuse to like break the bounds of physics. But I love that. I love that about like, that's just so precious. It's, it's so precious. Uh, so let's kind of jump in. Now this can be just fellowship. This can be all three of the, the films in mm-hmm. the franchise. What are some things that you think these movies just do so well that still stands the test of time for you watching it again, 20 years later? I mean, I think the first thing that anyone would say is practical effects. Mm-hmm. But the Return of the King looks worse than The Fellowship because Fellowship, they did almost entirely practical effects. And by Return of the King, they were dabbling more in, in CGI and things like that. And um, and so like a big part of it is that they built the sets and they like created these worlds and they had uh, th- they would do as much as they possibly could without without going into any CGI and because CGI ages so badly so quickly mm-hmm. uh, because we just get used to seeing better and better. The reason that you can still watch Fellowship now 20 years later, which is wild to me, 21 years later, is that it's all real. Like it's all real. They're all riding the horses and the makeup from his prosthetics and they built the miniatures and like Frodo isn't artificially sized down. They use size doubles and they use mm-hmm. camera tricks. Like everything about it down to, I have so many books on how they made this. Like down to the fact that they calculated like the proportion of the weave of Gandalf's mm-hmm. Gandalf's robe. And so then when you're seeing a shot of his size double, it's like a larger weave. So it looks the same. Like there's so many details to it that are just brilliant and the, a little bit over the top and like very few studios would again, allow you to mm-hmm. do now and very few people would take the time to do now. It's true. So I think that's a huge part of it that just like set the, and then they, then they just like focus so much on creating the tone of the world. And that's the mm-hmm. thing I think is missing in most adaptations is mm-hmm. most places start with the plot and Jackson started with like, what does the world look like? And what is the story we're trying to tell? And then built it out from there and made changes from there. And like very, very, very few people, they'll either try and hit every plot point or they'll try and make the changes they think are better, but they won't keep that central focus on like, what is the story I'm telling and where is it, where is it taking place? Absolutely. So, Yeah, I, I, that was so beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, it's so the care in the research that went into this film, like myself as a designer, as a dramaturg director, it is just, it's the things that like I aspire to because every shot is, has intention. Every choice has intention. Um, every character movement, like there's just, especially in the first film, because really all that people had to compare it to is the, those late seventies animated films, which mm-hmm. are, visually really beautiful like there's something really cool animation wise about those um there's something very spooky and 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 graphic because that was you know still is pre-graphic uh computer design Mm -hmm. um but yeah again there's it's the focus on a large scale but even they're still really controlling the amount of people that are in shots uh that they don't you know in when you're in hobbitum you need a ton of hobbits and when you're in um rivendell um 
and in Lothlorien, there are sprawling shots of lots of people, but they're not in the small shots. And even with the Urukai and the orcs, you're getting those large shots, but even then they're focusing on the players that are important and really just telling their story um, and not adding too much more than we need, which I, I appreciate so much in those moments of, of intention. Um, for me, I think I have to start with the design of the world, which again, it's it's the the world they're creating is so, because it's familiar to anyone who's ever even looked at a Dungeons and Dragons book, has yeah. ever thought about fantasy, has ever looked at like a hand drawing of like Tolkien and elves and things. You could tell that like, that's where the idea started. And then they took it beyond like thinking about like, the difference in how hobbits would make garments and fabric, how the elves would make garments and fabric. And even that like, there's something still like the hobbits are fun, but basic. And then there's something very utilitarian about the men, like the, mm -hmm. the, the world of men. It looks exactly what they need. There's not a lot of frivolity to it. Um, but even developing the difference in texture and color between Rivendell and Lothlorien, um, it was really great and like the intricacy of the elven embroidery with the uh, with the um uh the like silver threads and things but even the like intricacies and the ostentatious um like legacy of the dwarves look i mm -hmm. i i the, and this is the one thing that i think rolled over beautifully into the hobbit was the kind of furthering of the idea of the design of the dwarves yes um, because there are so few dwarves left in by the time we get to the fellowship and we really only see Gemli um, for the most part that like, that is, we only have him as our pivot point of the world. I mean, they joke about uh, lady, lady dwarves having beards and things, but um, uh, you know, it's other than inside of the mines, we don't really see any other like uh, dwarvish architecture, dwarvish design. And so really they, they made sure that everything looks so distinct and so specific, but even thinking about the differences in like the magic and practice of Saruman versus um, Gandalf, uh, just as kind of their different levels of wizard. Yeah. Uh, again, there's you can just tell there's intention and research behind the design which built the world because it's really important that when you see a character that the audience understand everything that they need to know about that character before they even hear them speak and i think this is one of the movies where they do a lot of show not tell and yes. it's really really effective they did it in their fighting styles too like mm -hmm. so i studied stage combat and obviously like like you have um oh god why can't i think of his name right now John, um, hmm, the, the, the choreographer, I gotta look him up. I know his name because I cheered for, I was the only person who cheered for him when, uh, when Carrie Elwes was talking about him as the princess bride thing. Um, I know his name. Of course, I can't think of it right now. Fight choreography. All right. Well, this is just embarrassing. <laughs> it's fine. He, he was he was a uh, he was Vader's stunt double in um, Star Wars. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, 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 come on, Bob Anderson. Come on. Okay, Anna, I know this. Um, so Bob Anderson, one of the things he did that was, you know, it was a very apparent change that after he had died when they shot the Hobbit movies, they didn't have a fight choreographer his of his caliber. Was that he created a different fighting style for every mm -hmm. for every race. Like the dwarves did not fight like the elves and the elves did not fight like the men, even if they were using similar weapons. And that's the kind of thing that like 
you never see, you don't like hear them say that ever, but it's so visually apparent in how they move and how they like work through the world that like, it's just every single level, every person who came to that film was like, I'm bringing my A game and I'm going like, oh, I get to do my nerd. Like I get to do my Mm -hmm. nerd shit here. Like I'm going to do my nerd shit here. It's also because it's, it's one of those projects that could be a once in a lifetime thing where you can literally show the whole breadth of your work. Well, and it's even like in the design, like the, the Weedo workshop that did Mm -hmm. all the weapons and the models, the like difference in how he designed the fighting for Legolas uh, with like the curvature of his blades versus Mm -hmm. like the kind of brunt forceness of, of uh, Boromir and Aragorn's um, like blades that are a little yeah. more front force and like Gimli having an axe, you know, right. and it's just, and even like the hobbits, like throwing their little daggers around and things like there. It's, it's again, it's so important to setting that tone of the world, which is just, it's just beautiful. It's so nice. It's so nice. Um, and it's the thing that no one took away from that film. Everyone took away, we can do a three hour movie and it should look like Lord of the Rings. Nobody took away, we should look at the source material and like really nerd hard on it. Mm-hmm. Except for, I will say again, going back to the series that we barely talk about now, Potter, um, it, the designers, the designers stepped up in that series in a way that like nobody else did. Yep. And they're the only ones who I feel like really got the memo and like understood the assignment and Lord of the Rings. It was like, everybody did. Everybody showed up to be like the actors. They, they fostered such a great relationship between them. Um, The way they all like, not even in a method way, although Viggo Mortensen sometimes went in that like fake twisted method way to a degree I disagree with, but, um, but everyone was like, you know, we're going to like, our characters are friends. We're going to hang out all the time. Like they really Mm -hmm. all just, created this level of like living and breathing the story mm-hmm. in a way that like no- nobody does when they make films and they should that was the one thing you should have taken <laughs> from this adaptation absolutely oh it's i love any of the interviews that they just had all the hobbit boys together i just and what's so interesting is like they all are kind of like reverse order in age wise. Mm-hmm. Like I was reading an article the other day and you got like Billy Boyd who like no one had heard of before. And um, I mean, Dominic McGonaghan, unless you watch British television, you had no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. And, but like stand out as Marion Pippin, like stand out. They are Marion Pippin. They like, are there's Marian no, Pippen. there's no one else could like be those characters. And, and there's just uh, it's, you know, it's, so sweet to see those men interact and like they're all coming to Orlando next month for a Megacon and I was like am I going to buy a very expensive meet and greet package because I can finally meet the four of them uh because also I will say being a 17 year old queerling when this movie came out not even 16 when the first movie came out 18 when the last one came out my sexuality was defined by this film god yeah anyways like Four years, I chased gorgeous blonde twinks because of Orlando Bloom, and I'm so angry about it now. Uh, but also, I was just like, where are the short kings at? Like, this movie is why I love short men to this day. Because right. I was just like, why Billy Boyd's so cute? Why Sean Astin a thick cutie? Like, why are all <laughs> these things happening? Also, again, it, maybe it's because... Something I'm going to jump to, I guess, for me, which is, I believe, apparent in the book, but they really leaned into in this, is the really wonderful, 
love and friendship that is the relationship of Frodo and Sam. Yes. And which a lot of us that were young were like, ooh, ooh, are they boyfriends? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, it's that thing of like, it is a it's that like male male love for friends in a way that we don't see people still telling that story or right because again it's still not masculine it's not the thing but the the, i mean i cry every time i watch the end of this movie when they're in the water and like it's for like and i'm coming with you of course you are i'm going alone and i (laughs) I'm like crying. And I was like, what do you mean? There's no more movie. Right. What do you mean? Um, uh, but that, I think that, oh God. And like something, because, you know, again, I think it's hard to talk about this film and not talk about Potter in some ways that like, because mm-hmm. you've got Gandalf and Dumbledore that are always right. like compared, but there's a lot of things where like Ian McKellen understood Gandalf in many mm-hmm. ways. I do love that Ian McKellen feels that there is a queerness to Gandalf that I also a thousand percent agree with, but also he's so old and so influenced by the elves. And I believe there's an inherent queerness to the elves as well. Oh yeah. It's like, um, you know, it's just like, of course he is, of course he, but also it's just like, he thought there was an inherent queerness to Magneto. Uh, like, and that's just a thing. And it's, it's kind of what I believe is like an ex performer, but it's like a queer theater artist. We're always going to bring those aspects of ourselves to the screen, mm-hmm. um, into the character. So like, why not lean into it? It doesn't make them queer, but there is, you know, there's an essence, eccentricity to Gandalf this whole time. Yes. You know, he, very few, like, men get to wear like flamboyantly flowing robes even if they're made out of linen fight a giant flaming beast and then rise from the ashes as a gorgeous all-white glowing being it's like what we all want in the world right you know it's they all again brought a sensitivity to what they did and in many ways they really kind of alter especially in fantasy because fantasy is where we see the most kind of toxic male traits Mm -hmm. kind of toxic writing kind of toxic tropes especially with women um you know there aren't many female characters in this but that is also just kind of inherently the idea of the the, the kind of source material but also yeah the time well and like the time like uh the one thing that i like that i almost can't forgive Peter Jackson for is cutting out the scouring of the Shire because it took away Rosie's character yeah. who was like a radical labor organizing like revolutionary and like okay she wasn't like Eowyn but she was like she was there she was doing the work Sam came back and was like oh man maybe, maybe we need to fight this dude who's like taking over your town and she's like oh we're on it like you can yeah. help because you have the war like you've been to battle come along but like we're we're not we're not just passively accepting this right right that is the one thing is that like the whole idea was like if you don't stop this the shire is going to be taken but it's like jokes on you man a lot of things are happening to the shire while you're gone it's not a short Mm -hmm. amount of time like the hobbits are being pulled into the world in a way that they never were before because that is the point of this is these kind of stringent barriers between races and people are being ripped down in so many ways. So it's like that affected the Shire. And so the Shire itself was changed. The people of the Shire were changed by the time that Sam got back mm-hmm. and all of them got back. So like, that's the whole point at the, you know, when we're getting into return of the King, uh, it's kind of the same thing they did with the Hobbit. There was such a focus on battle and these like large scale things 
that the battle isn't actually the most important part of any of these books. Right. And you it's know, the I people mean, like it's, yeah. it's what happens to the people. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that Tolkien's writing that I feel like everybody who imitated Tolkien afterwards, like if we're looking at like Game of Thrones, for example, mm-hmm. the thing that I feel like George R. R. Martin missed when he was like nerding out over Lord of the Rings is that like, it's not, it's not the political like machinations that that make lord of the rings good and it's not the battles that make lord of the rings good this was a person who had seen what war did to human beings Mm -hmm. who had lived through it who had lost all of his best friends who had seen like the countryside that he loved like torn apart Mm -hmm. and was writing for people who had also lived through that and so what he wrote about was like trauma and healing Mm -hmm. and friendship and like (laughs) and loyalty and and so much of his work gets misinterpreted by people who who came after the fact and mm-hmm. who read it and were like oh swords and like i love a sword don't get me oh, wrong okay. I, I love, love a moment mm-hmm. but like that's not what tolkien cared about tolkien right. cared about languages he cared about like culture and he cared about like relationships well and that's why like when we meet the ents in the two towers that's why the ents are like to me they're really important in the book they're a huge part but like this idea of how ancient they are and he describes how their language is tied to their breath and their breaths Mm -hmm. like and like the ent wives like there's so much of that lore that again when you're including everything you're kind of miss some things Mm -hmm. but something else that i feel like really set tolkien's writing apart was his relationship with c.s lewis yes and his friendship with lewis and again you see tolkien's because i'm growing up being a super evangelical kid the thing we were allowed was c.s lewis so like 10th birthday (laughs) jesus fantasy yeah jesus fantasy yeah so like 10th birthday my gift was the 35 dollar box set from the christian bookstore of Mm -hmm. the they would think this probably the if i was 10 19 so like the 1992 re-release where all of the covers were together and then the magician i think i had that one too the magician's nephew was in like the right spot for the first time and um and you know, all of the art was really interesting on the covers, but like you can see their interest where so many contemporary, and I use contemporary, you know, starting with those sure, like yeah. 16, the 1960s writers on, um, there is a separation of each other from each other. Like they might communicate, they might be friends, but like their other people's work like as a friend thing doesn't influence your work. So like, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the men who try to do what Ursula K. Le Guin did, but like in a different way, instead of like bonding with Le Guin, they're just trying to rip off Le Guin and like right. those things. And so, but there's also so much of like Tolkien and Le Guin's writing. Like, you know, it's just one of those things, like so many things in, inform each other's mm-hmm. things. But I think it's one of those things and you see it in comic book writers now that yes. so many of them are working together. There's so much better storytelling and art in comics now than when you've got like the Rob Liefeld time of the 1990s where it's just like, look at what I could fucking do. Right. Um, and you've got that one writer, you got that one artist that's agreeing to do your stupid big titty Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's one of those things that like Martin, while, you know, Game of Thrones is a really gorgeous, massive universe. Sure, yeah. And tell that he took inspiration from people that came before him, but he was 
not making like relationships with his peers mm-hmm. and let each other influence each other's works. Like so much of what I do design wise is influenced by everybody I work with and something I still love about theater. And so I think that's really when you're getting into fantasy, you can tell the people who are inspired by the genres and the people in their genre before them, or you've got I'm even just going to call it out. You've got the Stephanie Myers of the world who want to create something, yeah. but literally ignore the genre. You're not inspired by anything else, which again, it's not always a bad thing, but it, there's, there's a beautiful thing about Tolkien has the ability to take what was in the world around him and use it to inspire himself, but then also be open to the inspiration of those around him, which is just, I think, and- so beautiful and so poignant. And actively created those communities because he Mm -hmm. had his writing group of his friends at college, um, most of whom did not survive World War One. And then he had he created it again with the Inklings, with C.S. Lewis and with other writers where they literally would get together and like talk about stories together and like and 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 inspire one another and bounce ideas off one another. And that's my favorite. Like as I'm going through like job interviews and, and application stuff, I'm always saying like, and I work best in like a dynamic team where I can bounce ideas off people. And that's like, and that's what you saw in this film too. Like, I don't think Jackson ever came in and said, this is what we're doing and, yep. you know, shut your mouth. And this is what, this is what's going to happen. Like he drew inspiration from, from others. And I know that it could be difficult at times. Cause I actually mm-hmm. knew someone who worked as a, as a graphics, uh, in graphics on his team and they were like we were up shooting to like and editing till god knows what time because if jackson was doing it you were doing it he didn't particularly like that which is a valid critique uh, yeah um, absolutely <laughs> but also and like they would rewrite the script and as they were shooting it would get new stuff and so it was i think stressful but you also just saw like like i don't that's what I made me want to be an actor. And I think that's also what made me fall out of love with acting and filmmaking is very few environments nurture that sense mm-hmm. of community and collab and collaboration, which is what I came out of those films yearning for. Like you'd see all of the, the cast talking about their processes and how they affected each other. And Jackson talking about how they would change this for this person because of X, Y, Z. And then, and then when I started actually trying to do it and getting into it so few projects were like that Mm -hmm. and it was like well you can do a lot of projects to maybe one day get to work on something like this or you can go elsewhere and I was like I am not this is not what I signed up for yep so Well, and really when it comes to like performance and those things, it's one of those, if you can't wake up and like eat, sleep and breathe it that day, it's one of those things. It's like, don't do it. There are a thousand other things to do. Enjoy, do community theater or whatever, but it's like, right. don't, there are so many things stacked against you in these situations. So like, just don't, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and you can even, again, see that love in the cast because you could see them when they got to reunite to do all the press tours and everything oh. that like two years later, they were just so excited to like be together and do things again, which, um, uh, um, you know, when you can tell that people love and care for each other as they're working on a project, it really, again, shows on the screen. Uh, but I will also say that, like, one of the people, it's funny that you brought up that Vigo's a little method in his way, but it's like, <laughs> there are shower, times, uh, uh, rivers. That, you know, it's one of those things that, I mean, I'm sure that was beautiful because, I mean, he's a very handsome man. Uh, but like, you know, it's also like, man, we've got, we literally have paid a lot of money for shower, like shower. It's like, it's like kids that go to liberal art schools and get a women's studies degree or like a white kid getting a black studies degree. That's just like, 
listen, hygiene um, privilege is a thing. And so because we need to learn how to restandard that as Americans, I will not bathe. And it's like, <laughs> your parents are paying $10,000 a semester for right. your dorm. Please shower. You know, it's the same thing. It's like on a production. Uh, they're paying a lot of money to make sure that there are literal facilities in the middle of nowhere for you. Please use them. So, and they're paying for like designers who can make you look better dirty than like you can make yourself look. Exactly. Just like, because like, you know what? It's just going to torture everyone who has to touch you in the chair every day. Like, and it's also... I mean, again, as a designer, we need consistency between shoots because it's taking three years to shoot this movie. You know, it's like over this time, you've got to kind of look, sir, sir. Also, please, like, please stop camping and bathing in rivers, please. Yeah, also, please. Liv Tyler's not going to want to get near you, sir. You're kind of you're you're going to stain the beautiful white sets of Rivendell, sir. Like you, you're not going to be able to set on any furniture. You're not going to be allowed. <laughs> like that's just it's filthy. It's I can't, I can't stand it. <laughs> no. Nope. Thankfully, now that like Jared Leto has like reached his peak of like grossness, that people are finally like, oh, maybe method's really damaging. And I'm like, yes, we've been screaming this for years. Right. And like maybe this wasn't what we initially set out to do with this, with this method. Maybe yeah. this like, and then I will say to Vigo's credit, he's not one of those guys which seems to be every other person who's gone yeah. to that level where they're like, I want to be an abusive jerk. So I'm going to call it my method. Yep. Like Vigo seems like a lovely human being, but well, uh, cam camping on set and bathing in rivers is just a little too far for me. Sir, that's a little too crunchy. And is nobody, no one's impressed by it. Like my good man, my brother in Christ, as the kids would say, <laughs> uh, no, sir, you were hired onto this. They're not paying you to camp. <laughs> like no. They got you an apartment. Go to it. Yes. Yeah, so go to the apartment or sleep in that beautiful trailer they have for you because they are, they were tricked out, you know, but it is, uh, yeah, it's, and you know, I, I think sometimes you can see that in his character that like, He's so introspective. And while I understand that as the character, there is sometimes that we're like, everybody else is very open about their journey as the characters, their characters are very open. Mm -hmm. And even though his Strider Aragorn is like very inside, there's mm -hmm. still moments where I was just like, man, you can tell his energy was so locked in while everybody else, it's also hard when like, it's him Jonathan Rhys Davies and Orlando Bloom and Orlando Bloom and Jonathan Rhys Davies just to get to be quippy the whole time. And he's just like mm, brooding. And it's I like, got, I got to brood. <laughs> you can have fun. My dude, you're literally all of your long shots are just you all running through fields. Like, come on, have some fun. My dude. No, but they they couldn't have fun on those long shots because they were all injured. It's, I mean, it's, well, that's the thing is this is also like you almost, <laughs> we probably couldn't also make movies the same way now because of injuries. Like, yeah, like I, there's that scene in Two Towers where it's like Orlando, John Reese Davies size double mm -hmm. and Vigo and they're all running across a field. And then apparently when they called cut, they all start limping because Vigo had broken his toe, kicking that helmet and screaming. And Orlando had bruised his ribs, falling off a horse. And and, and I can't remember his name. Uh, the other guy had, had um, he'd like messed up his knee or something. And so they call cut and they're all like, oh God, oh God. <laughs> I just, that takes so much more strength than I've got in it. But like, you know, I also going back to you talking about the practical effects, the cinematography in this really sets it apart because Ugh. again, they could have very easily, they could have easily 
CGI mountains and things. Right. And, you know, even again, you reference Return of the King. A lot of that final battle, while epic at the time, was CGI, all mm-hmm. the elephants and things. But I'm really glad that, like, we leaned into, like, the beauty and, like, having them in the, the snowy sets and the mines of Moria. There's just so much that is practical and real. And that is, again, I think what sets fellowship apart from the OG. Because even... right. The Helm's Deep set is cool, but like when you really start watching, because I've probably seen these movies about 150 times. Mm-hmm. I've watched them so much. Because pre-streaming, like I was a DVD collector and these movies were great to have in the background, especially the um, director's cuts, which are yep. six fucking hours of movie. <sighs> when you're working on a term paper, you pop one in and it's like, okay, you have to be done by the time this movie is done. Right, right. <laughs> like, so you're going to work through the night and then you, you, you'll you be asleep by 2 a.m. and then you'll wake up at eight for class and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, again, those things that really, I think, set this apart. Um, I still think that like the lighting of the beacons in Return of the King is one of the most incredible shots it's ever. Like to this day, you would think, you would think that after like, almost 20 years that would be lost on me that yep. impact or like on a smaller screen I wouldn't care or like something something would have like faded in that but yep. no every time I watch it it's like hard in my throat my breath catches like it's so well done and it's so well scored yep. like obviously Howard Shore's like best work Andrew Lesney was a phenomenal cinematographer just like everything about that just when it won when it won the oscar for cinematography i was like yeah if you'd given it to anyone else i would have like i would have like burned this whole place down for that shot clearly alone, yeah for that yeah. sequence alone well and i think it even really informed like movies that were coming out at the time of like when disney was working on pirates of the caribbean which i think uh three gorgeous movies stunning again they do a lot of the same thing where it's so much practical scenery and sets mm-hmm. and islands and things that it really kind of informed what was happening and so um, and bob anderson's choreography again yep. <laughs> oh of course yeah but it's one of those things that it's like even looking forward 10 years later to avatar when it would release in 2012 i think that was 2013 so much much of that 2011 or 2011 yeah yeah. i mean because disney's releasing the sequels at some point but it's too late my friends Mm, can't wait like 15 years and then (laughs) also no does anyone care about the navi at this point i don't know uh it's beautiful at animal kingdom i guess um but it's one of those (laughs) things that like they still could have made so much of pandora practical in the film but they Mm -hmm. just didn't um and this is one of those situations where, sure, they could have probably CGI'd those and not had to go through grueling hours of helicopter shots, but they did. And is it fucking worth it? Absolutely it is. Well, and it's why The Hobbit doesn't look as good. And this is not mm-hmm. through a choice. Like, this is through a time crunch and not necessarily a choice on their part. Yeah. I think if they'd had six years to do pre-production again, they would have done the six years of pre-production. And that's, like, the large basis of my Hobbit soapbox is that, like, you have to understand they did not have the time to devote to this. They have for Lord of the Rings for variety of political re- like uh, um, industry reasons, but you can tell the difference because mm-hmm. slapping some CGI on some orcs looked bad when it came out in theaters versus like manufacturing thousands of prosthetics and every single one looking different. It's like the, the level of detail and practicality, it just shines through and it will continue yep. to shine through for like the night, like I could show this to, to kids like 20 years from now and they'd still be like, 
mind blown for yeah. most of it. Well, it's the same reason why we can look back at specific films from the 50s and 60s and still be completely blown away by what they did. But even looking at the first and second film, I get that like Helm's Deep had to be so large in, mm-hmm. in stature, but there's even those moments of you can tell that like there's are the classically the orcs that are like running into the wall and just running circles because it's all being programmed. And while a lot of the up close stuff was still done with the yeah in their parking lot like incredible but you know it's still those moments of they were trying to use other things to help themselves it wasn't always as effective of course it was cool at the time now something that i will still say looks awesome and it's because of the the difference in how they created it was andy circus's Gollum using the motion capture Gollum still looks really good right Uh, once they switched to how they did it in the two towers like mind blow because it's very very different in in fellowship like the few shots we get him are completely different like like build and 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 animation style but like he still looks fantastic i mean like sure you could add more today right but like no, he's incredible. And it's, it's, um, I mean, because you've got Andy Circus now who does, you know, doesn't do that kind of thing anymore. He's still doing some things, but like he's in films now as like himself, which is great. And he was an awesome villain in Black Panther, but like, right. Um, you know, he's like a Doug Jones style character who understands the physicality of a character. Um, Sean Gunn, who does the motion capture yes. for Rocket. Also, Sean Gunn does not get the fucking credit he deserves no. for Guardians. One, because like his actual character with Yondo, uh, the, the, the like lackey Yondo, so good. But all of his work as Rocket is so wonderful he makes that character like it would not work without him yeah it's like bradley cooper's funny because he can deliver funny lines with the Mm -hmm. like the funny voice but like all of the like fun character things it's also why like baby groot at the beginning of the second film was so good because uh james gunn is such a nerd and quirky and a terrible dancer that that's why it's so adorable and people loved it because it was just motion capture of james gunn Mm -hmm. but it's they also really like making sure the like there is the, the depth of Gollum is the same as like Frodo and Sam. And the fact that Andy was there with them really helped and is so good. Like, right. They didn't motion capture him on like a sound stage. No. He was li- they literally at one point were melting snow from a, from a river and we're like, all right, knock yourself out, go catch some fish. And he was like, yeah. I'm take my blanket off. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, oh it's just so the the voice i mean so many of us nerds uh defined our personalities by having a passable golem that we could pull out at parties i mean it's still on my resume and it will often get pulled out in an audition if I do like community theater things. And uh, I used to, I used to do a bit where I would do Madeline Kahn's flames monologue from Clue yes. as Gollum. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I love it. Just cause I have nothing better to do. Apparently uh, didn't have many friends for a lot of my life. Uh, it's fine, <laughs> Same. Uh, <laughs> but we are fine. Wonderful adults now that people strive to be. Friends yes. With. We are well adjusted <laughs> and are very difficult to get a hold of at times because I just don't want to answer text messages. <laughs> Uh, uh, but yeah, no, those are those things that it's so good, especially two towers is one, the, the storytelling of the three of them together Mm -hmm. is so good, but also Andy really understanding the nuances between Schmeagol and Gollum and actually understanding the internal 
journey and struggle of Gollum uh, and Smeagol and not making it a quirky bipolar multiple personality right parody. like it wasn't a gimmick no even when it was fun even when it was funny it wasn't a gimmick like you're watching the character struggle in a beautiful way and where we know that he has to die the way he dies at the end again spoilers it's 80 it's years old at this movie. point a 20 year old movie in an 80 year old book friends sorry we're just it's what you got at this well 70 year old book but yeah, it's one of those where it's like, it had to happen that way. And it's also like in many ways, because I hadn't read Return of the King, if Frodo had had to per- perish at the end of that film, I would have understood because mm-hmm. that is also those things that like, you know, there's also that beautiful idea of not being cliche in that like the, um, the, the, the ruining of innocence, the ruining of purity yeah. uh, in Frodo's journey and in Sam's journey. Um, but even and the way they're not like, okay. At the mm-hmm. end, like Frodo is not okay. Frodo is damaged for the rest of his life. And he has to literally like leave the world to find peace, which is literally like, go to elf space, literally like... go to elf space. The other day I was watching, um, I'm actually on dropout and there was a Lord of the Rings question that was like in the theology of middle earth it used to be flat and then became round yes. over time so when the elves are actually going off to the Greylands, that it's literally they're floating through space because it is still on the same plane as yep. it was flat and i went that can't be right and then no, it was right so and i true. went I went so and I love that uh, trip just went so in that world flat earthers are just nostalgic and uh, we had to like pause it and I like got up and walked around the room and just laughed so much like it's just but it's those little things that like the universe that Tolkien has built is just so much more immersive than these movies actually ever even go to into or that like anyone fully understands I, he, seeing his um, exhibit, the exhibit just made me love him even more because he's a nerd in ways that like, again, we like few authors go that far mm-hmm. with their stuff. They'll create a language, they'll create this, but this man created an entire universe just so that he could use this language he had created because he was such a dork. And like my favorite thing that I saw while I was there was that he used to do his Sunday crossword puzzle and he would just like doodle his name and Elvish in the margins, just like all us nerds did in our middle school planners when we were Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. nerds. And I was like, this man loved his world as much as we did. And like more, more than anyone could possibly could. He had a working map that was like to scale that he would reference as he wrote and like he didn't create the map after the fact or it wasn't a vague thing it was like a it was like a grid it was a graph it was like the size of my wall and if he got stuck on a scene he would paint it before he wrote it so that he could get a visual of it just like the levels he went to are just like very neurodivergent and obsessive, which is same. <laughs> I always use this as a reference for when I was teaching at UF or when I was an undergrad with the younger kids and they would just be like, our gen eds aren't important. It's so stupid. I just want to do like my, my, my theater classes. And I was like, no, obsessing over your gen eds is what makes you a well-rounded person, but also discovering gen eds that you actually want to like study right. and do, but like, 
of course the man is good at topography. Of course the man is a painter, like all of these things. But also you don't then write all of the other books that are the past history of your world without loving the loving world that it. you've created. No, my other favorite thing was there was a letter from his friends and one, he didn't like The Hobbit because there wasn't enough lore in it. And he didn't understand why The Hobbit was popular, which is like, bless your little nerd heart. But my other favorite thing was he was, he wrote to his friend and he was like, the publishers like really want me to put out Lord of the Rings. And like, I'm just so conflicted because I don't believe anyone will love my story unless I've released the textbook of lore first. He wanted to put the Silmarillion, what became the Silmarillion out first. And the publishers were like, no, people want to read a plot. And he was like, I just like, no one's going to care about this book if they don't understand the thousands of years of history that go into it first. And his friend was like, what is wrong with you? Just release your fucking book, man. Just release it. Just like people, it's a good story. I read it. And he was like, I just, I'm so angry. I want to release like the 30,000 like pages of, of prequel that I've written first. I hate to tell you, man, post-World War II, that's not what people want. History is not what people are looking towards. They're looking towards a future, man. This would never have been a hit if Tolkien had had his way with the marketing. And that's why we have teams who are good at things that we are not good at. <laughs> like, oh. that, is, that is why having a community of people surrounding you <laughs> is important because yes. we can't do everything because otherwise you're gonna put out like the, the endless history and no one's gonna care he also had a really big obsession with putting red ink in the books for like the, the rings text and he kept getting notes from the publisher being like too expensive it's like that on the wall was like god fatal it's like every time he like he wanted the red sun for the hobbit like the hobbit uh, cover and they were like we're not doing red man red's really expensive to print in and it was like four different examples of different editions and books where he like tried to sneak it in and the publisher was like no <laughs> i mean hopefully he knows from the other side of wherever he is that we eventually got the red cover for the hobbit so yes yeah he did <laughs> and did. the red in the in the books i'm pretty sure mine yeah. has like the red ink now but yeah. it was just yeah it's an, yeah. it's the nerd he's such a nerd it's and a nerd, nerd who loves his work i think that's what oh, shines yeah. through and something I loved that they did is they were able to market and merchandise this movie from like fast food level all the way up to yeah. like high end replicas and people devoured everything. Oh my God. Yeah. I still have Galadriel's ring and the elven brooch. Cause mm -hmm. I was like, a, I, I did not have a lot of expendable income. So I would like cry over Arwen's crown and never get it. But like I did for save up for the elven brooch because all my friends and I would you know we all had our characters that we of were course, in the fellowship of course, of course and then also like for Christmas I was like the only thing I want the only thing I want is this $70 <laughs> replica of Nenya Galadriel's ring which you can now get for $350 on AliExpress right <laughs> who would have thought I definitely got the Elven, the like the brooch clip. I've got like four different versions of it mm -hmm. that are that vary in price from $50 to a dollar uh, right. that, that I got overnight or took 12 years to come from Korea. You know, it's right, right. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, I also like there was. I think one of my friends, there was a thing that you could get that was the light up of the tower and then the ring yeah. nestled in it. And I got that as a gift from somebody. And I went, God. Oh, and I wore it everywhere. Or everywhere. like the chess set that was like $400. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, did 
Did was I subscribed to the Noble Collection catalog? Yes, I was. Did I cry over it every year because I couldn't get anything from it? Yes, I did. Did I had plans to get married in like Arwen's green wedding dress? Of course of I did. Of course. Why? Not? Did I, was I mad that I was already balding when I was 17 and could not grow out my gore, my naturally blonde hair to beautiful, beautiful. Elven things. lengths. Beautiful elven lengths. And also like when we're talking like the wigs in this movie, because this is like pre-people being super knowledgeable about wigs and like right. wigs, the cost of wigs at this time like this is pre-lace fronts being industry standard this is you don't have people that have learned how to not natural wigs on youtube so like right this is, you've got people building these and like laying laying a pulled back natural hairline on someone with orlando bloom who is beautiful but has a ton of darker featured real estate to yes. go with uh yeah just exemplary like and they like scoured new zealand and australia to find like the best people again it wasn't like industry people it was a very indie production where they were like who can ride horses and ride them well so they yep. wound up with a lot of like women as the as the nazgul and as the soldiers because that was who was doing horse riding competitions um it was like who who does wig work um who who does textile work so it's like just oh god the levels they went to and the people they brought in there was even some like there's some reality show on netflix about like airbnb homes and one of the women like her claim to this like very eccentric woman her claim to fame is that she was one of the wig workers on lord of the rings listen that's she incredible off her wig collection listen i strive for that because like a lot of projects i will say the only other project that i think is uh gotten to this level of like beautiful wig work is honestly uh game of thrones yeah but which is really great to have that conversation because like thinking that every daenerys wig that they had for amelia clark was a seven thousand dollar wig and so putting that in scale to like you know we only see kate blanchett like three times but right. like she's in a wig. Orlando Bloom has several that are for different versions of battle. Every Hobbit. Singe. Every Hobbit's got a wig. You've got Aragorn. The- everyone. And literally mm-hmm. everyone has a wig in that movie mm-hmm. pretty much, except mm-hmm. maybe Liv Tyler. But I think even her. I think they probably even wig because it's the share method. But it's also like when you're in a place where no one's from and you're not sure what the weather's going to do. It's like Laura Bell Bundy and Legally Blonde on Broadway mm-hmm. had natural blonde hair. It was a little thinner than her Elwood, but it's sure. like it's better to wig someone because you can always have control over what that wig does mm-hmm. versus, I mean, everyone out there who has any sort of hair that styles it knows that your hair is so unpredictable no matter what. And the last thing you want to do is ruin a shot. Cause he had uh, a bad hair day or well, like, it's know, just like flatter. It like wasn't consistent. I know even talking about like devil wears Prada, they had a ton of issue with like Emily Blunt and Anne Hathaway's hair because neither of them wore wigs for that movie, but obviously Meryl Streep did. Um, but like keeping Emily Blunt's hair that red and like keeping Anne Hathaway's that like pin straight mm-hmm. Versace, like share look, it's so difficult. And so again, the level of commitment in this movie is just astounding. I just... It's so good. They were like, they, and they like literally brought someone in to write entire books about it. Like that, like sort of built his career was writing, like, like he came and he documented, I have them all. Like he documented the whole process. And those are like my prized possessions that I will never get rid of, even though I've like moved away from that, Mm -hmm. that path, because 
like when my friends who are like, I kind of want to watch Lord of the Rings, like get into it. Then I'm like, do you need like the footnotes? Do you need the annotations? Do you need to know what they did here? Do you need my poster size maps? Like, well, I mean, I, I live for a reference book. I, I can always write a coffee table book off on my taxes because I'm a designer. And so it's yes. like, I love those kinds of things. And this is one of the only franchises that's gone as in depth, but it's also like when you're working this hard and literally it's like that idea of like what Roddenberry and Lucas did with the original Star Wars and Star mm-hmm. Trek, you're creating, you are again, engineering, creating so many things. Why not follow your story? And so right. everybody else, like, brag a little publish books about it because again it's also ways because that's also back when those books are very expensive but everybody was buying them oh yeah and like the level like the things that you would learn about it you learned stuff from those books it wasn't just like here's a pretty picture mm-hmm. of what we did it was things like one of the the facts that stuck in my brain for years is that when they built Minas Tirith, the big, they called them the bigatures, like the big miniatures yeah they built the entire city they built staircases that were never shot that had like 300 mm-hmm. steps in them because they said, we just don't know. Like, what if we need to get a shot from the back? Yep. We don't know. And so they over-prepared for it. And so they, they built like this, it wasn't like, here's the front facade and the back is like flat. Yep. They, they built the entire thing. So like, yeah, show that off. Cause it's never be shown off anywhere else. Like Absolutely. Well, it's also like, um, Right. I can, I get, don't mean to reference Potter, but if you've been to the Warner brothers uh, <laughs> exhibit in London, the most breathtaking thing for me and all of that was the hog, the model, the skill model. The of castle. Hogwarts. Yeah. It, holy shit. It's so beautiful. And like any large scale models are just so breathtaking because again, they're almost as tall as you are. Right. These like, are like four or five foot models. Like the, but I appreciate that more because you're seeing the actual scale and you're seeing all of the work in each brushstroke and all of the texture. And it's so cool. And it's so important. I think it's really because those things do come across, especially now that we're shooting in HD now, especially mm-hmm. now you're shooting everything. You can see every nook and cranny and crag. And again, if you see that it's things you don't have to add in in post-production. Right. And the, and you never get to a point where you're like, oh man, if we'd had this shot, like it would have been great. You can get all those shots. You can say what, you know what, let's just get yeah. one from this angle just in case. And then it, when suddenly you need that and you're like, oh man, like this isn't working the way I thought you have it there. One of my favorite pictures in one of those books is they have the model of, I want to, I think it's Helm's Deep once the wall is broken mm-hmm. through. And someone had brought their dog in as like a German shepherd, just like laying, guarding the, guarding the crack in Helm's Deep. It's such a good picture. Like it's I just so wonderful and whimsical and like just perfectly captures like, mm-hmm. like this film and like how people worked on it. Like, oh, it's, it's, I always, this is like one of my favorite things. I've, I've again, loved it for like 20 years, like show it off to people. I'm like, look at this, look at this picture though. It's like Cerberus laying at the gates of the underworld. Yes. I just love it. I just, that's so cute. Now, I think we've talked about a lot of things we love. We've we've touched. What are some things that now, like as a, as a person that like has studied filmmaking, has studied, done performance and things, who is an avid fan and understands the, the breadth of not just the films, but also the legacy of the franchise. What are some things that you look back now and just go, I think that's a misstep. Like this was a misstep. I think that was a bad choice. Something that maybe you would have changed. What are, what are some of those things for you? 
I mean, even at the time, I think a lot of what they did in Return of the King is where I have the most issues. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I understand the changes they made with Faramir because the changes they made with Faramir, they wanted to show that he wasn't like that he wasn't Aragorn. That so, like with the two towers, as I gotten older, I've understood more of the changes they've made. Like at the time, I was mad because Faramir is supposed to be like this untouchable character, and he's wonderful, and then you see him kind of doing the Boromir thing but overcoming it. But the way they explained it makes sense, which is that one, they wanted to show that Aragorn had this special, like noble elf blood that made him a little bit, you know, different. But Faramir still could be base and could be human and overcome the temptation. So, like that made sense. Also, the pacing the way two towers the book is paced because Sam and Frodo walk the whole book is that Shelob, which is happening in the beginning of the third book, that takes place at the same time as Helm's Deep, which is in the second book. And so the the pacing didn't line up. So they made some changes there to draw out Sam and Frodo's um, story. So I can get behind that. But when we went into the, the Return of the King, I feel like there were moments where where Peter Jackson got like, what he does he gets a little bit like up on his idea of who he is he gets a little too into his horror roots so you have the like extremely ridiculous rewrite of like the paths of the dead (laughs) which in the book is like they're being followed by shadowy figures aragorn makes a speech it's like it's very suspenseful but it's not horrific Mm -hmm. and then in the movie is like tidal wave of skulls (laughs) especially in the extended edition like it's just and they're like stepping on skulls and they're crunching yeah. and breaking mm-hmm. and it's like this was unnecessary unnecessary this did not need to happen the way it happened um and it's just it's it's the same thing as peter jackson getting like what if they don't make it to skull island though in king kong like they're obviously going to make it to the island yeah yeah and so i don't think that the, the ghosts needed to be as like zombified as they like that's just the thing that i've always been like you know what that was your thing it wasn't my thing and i think that you kind of missed the mark there well um especially because like ghosts the idea is that the ghost is what the person looked like when they died not what they look like decomposed later like yeah i like i get that you want it to be ridiculous but like isn't that what like the nazgul are for and those kind of things like like give us some we've got enough grotesque characters like I honestly think the ghosts should be the most beautiful things ever because again, if they're trying to stop you or like drag you in, drag you down, stop you, like shouldn't they be like beautiful and ethereal? And, and like- they they weren't even trying, like in the book, it's been a while since I read it, but in the book, it was like, they were following them because they're really the personifications of the guilt of these people yeah. who had turned on Isildur and they don't have any rage against Aragorn. They're just sort of there. And then mm-hmm. when he's like, I have the sword and I'm uniting you, they were like, oh, okay, got it. And so it was like this like dark horde that was following them of this like this like oppressive spiritual presence and hard to show visually, I'll admit that. But um, I think would have been more effective if they'd gone that route instead of these like creepy, like, no, that sword was broken. Like, come on now, we have orcs, it's fine. Yeah. And also the way that he did like, again, difficult to show, recognize that this is like me backseat driving on something that is not easy, but I thought the eye looking around and being a literal searchlight was the cheesiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I thought that in the theater. And I think that now 20 years later, like it just cheapened 
the the decisions he made at that point were no longer like indie thriller decisions. They were mm-hmm. zombie movie maker, which is mm-hmm. another thing that he comes from. Yeah. Um, it was less like beautiful creatures and more whatever his zombie thriller was that I can't remember the name of. And uh, dead dead alive, I think. Um, and like I, I just there were moments like that where I wish that he had stuck more to the original like character-driven story that we know and love because I get it. It's the last movie. It's epic. Mm-hmm. It's all of these things or the, the, the mouth of Sauron, like the mouth of Sauron is supposed to just be a human, yeah, maybe slightly off-putting human. And then he made it like, had like slashes in his face and like was mm-hmm. really zombified. Um, so that to me was like the biggest misstep that he made. And then obviously like, I think a lot of the like, um, Okay. Now I'm very excited for tentatively excited for the uh, new th- series because you're going to get yes. like diversity and we're going to get like more stories being told. So there's stuff like that, that I would really love to see that, I, that, you know, those movies are very homogenous and Tolkien's writing was very homogenous. And so mm-hmm. there's like, there's things I'm excited to see explored more. Um, and then just like the 15 endings. <laughs> We know the movie's not uh, ending there. And if it fade had ended in, there, I would have been so fade. angry. Like yes. I would have been so mad if you'd ended it there and you hadn't done any of the tie up and the wrap up. And then the ending was again, apart from the scouring of the Shire, which was partially cut for time, but was also cut because he didn't like that, that plot line. And that's the point where I'm like, I thought you understood these books. It's We're going to have some words though. later. It's important. <laughs> Tolkien loved a, loved a farmer and loved that like enterprising like British mm-hmm. farmhand and farm wife spirits. That's like really big part of his books. But um, th- so like his reasoning for cutting it pissed me off. Um, and and so like that whole thing, uh, but just the endings, like, like Terry Pratchett made a joke about that in one of his books where he would like, you'd come to the end of one plot line and then there'd be a blank page and you think it's over and then it'd be another one. And I was like, I know exactly who you're clowning uh-huh, here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, God bless Terry Pratchett. God bless. <laughs> oh, another man who's barely had good, uh, good adaptation oh, of his yeah, work, but that's a whole other can of worms. But um, so that whole thing was just like, you're not building suspense you think you're building like you have to tell more of this story there is more to tell and this sort of fake out which i think happened because they weren't like sure how much the studio is gonna let them keep in but even Mm -hmm. so just like re-edit it then i don't know man like yeah yeah also i mean like you know that the studios kind of cut it down but also like did they know they were getting the extended cuts at that point like i don't know but it was they did they were already releasing the extended editions of like in the inter, I think the extended first edition came out like halfway through the year before the two towers came out. So like those were a thing already. Well, so because they're like, we show we paid a lot of money to make this movie. We're gonna make it back. <laughs> right, right. And then again, another thing that was cut for time that I think if you hadn't done like Reigns of Skulls and shit, you would have had more time for it was the Aeon and Faramir story got cut from the um from the theatrical release Mm -hmm. and it was such an underselling of her character because she Mm -hmm. had these whole badass moments and all of this stuff and then the next thing we see she's making moon eyes at somebody that she's never talked to in her life at Aragorn's wedding and it was like that is I understand that there are things that need to be cut down for time but that is such a huge misstep with Mm -hmm. that character and they did in the extended editions give like a montage of him like starting to talk her through her depression and stuff again not what it deserved but 
we have to condense things, yeah. condense things for time. It's fine. But their story is such an inspiring one. And her story in particular, where she had this like this crush on her idea of who Aragorn was because mm-hmm. of what he represented to her. And she was just like completely enamored with him and then meet somebody who sees her as an equal and who's like, listen, I think you're incredible. And I also get that you're in this really dark place right now. And like, maybe let's talk about it for a bit. And they like help each other through their like daddy issues. And stuff. it's just like, it's so wonderful. And like, so yeah, we got the, we got the montage a little bit in the extended editions and I'm grateful for that. But when I saw the theatrical release, I was mm-hmm. fuming, <laughs> fuming because all of a sudden this like incredible badass character who'd been put in this story because Tolkien's daughter had asked for her to be like, like, please give me someone who represents me and who had this incredible moment. She like has her badass moment. It's like, oh, but it's okay. She got married now. Like what? <laughs> Okay, great, cute, we love it. In a script written by two women, come on now. Yeah. Oh, it's also like, oh, we can't have a female character that doesn't get married at the end, heaven forbid. Right, Um, and like she and Faramir, like their relationship, it makes sense as like survivors. Yeah. And it makes sense as people with like similar goals. But if you don't establish that, it's cheap as hell to pawn her off on somebody else. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I know for me, I had a friend that told me lots about things, but I know there was a ton of like Galadriel that we just do not know about in this movie. They cut her down so much. And when you've got someone like Kate Blanchett, I'm like, use the bitch, use her. Right. Well, especially when we see her like, her corruption in that wonderful moment. Again, a moment that looks super not great now, right. but was awesome at the time because you're like, oh, this bitch got darkness. And you're just like, I would love, as someone like who didn't know the books and didn't know the history, mm-hmm. that was so sparking of interesting to me um, that I wanted to know more. Right. And so again, I, I feel like you had nine and a half hour 10 hours between the three movies or 18 hours between the extended cuts give us some more like right also also really for a movie about some gorgeous demonic accessories we don't focus on the accessories or the lineage of them or that there are what 12 other rings so mm-hmm. yeah you hear it it's once like, and then it's gone yeah it's it's that gorgeous lead-in to everything and we have galadriel being the narrator but it's just like well so let's talk about gandalf's ring let's talk about right that we see of- in one shot at the end like <gasps> oh my god but it's what it's one of those things it's like let's let's find out more about that so and so now again i feel like we can't talk about this without talking hobbit just the, the three yeah. hobbit films, just a little bit um you know when you <sighs> when you take a very small novella style book and turn it into three three so, hour movies so that one like i love the concept behind uh-huh. that because mm-hmm. i love the working in of the lore and making it like like work more with lord of the rings i know a lot of people who are like hobbit purists i was a lord of the rings purist so a lot of people who are hobbit purists were like no it should have just been its own thing i respect that opinion i disagree with it but they were so, this is what happens when you don't have time to revise your scripts. When you're working off a first draft of a script, you don't have time for pre-production because the concept is great, but then they've got halfway through filming the movie and realized they paced it wrong and had to make a third one. And it was just three hours of battles. 
Well, and battles which are what, like five pages maybe in the book? Like, but it's also when Jackson was like, we need two in the studio was also like, but what if we made money off of a third? Right. Well, they had, they were going to do two. And then like the studio wanted a third, but also what happened is they got halfway through filming and realized they'd fucked up the pacing so badly that they needed like half a movie more. They had to, oh my God. And it was like, and like, they had to literally take time off while shooting. I want to say, um, while shooting, uh, uh, the desolation of smog i could be getting it wrong it's like out of which one it was and they had to like take three weeks and like come up with a new game plan because they were like oh no we don't have time to cover the battle of five armies because we fucked up our pacing so badly in the last two movies and the studio wanted to force in a romance which made no sense and i had no emotional investment in the order they made the characters die in and like And we talk about that romance. It is the one thing that I think ruins Ruins. those. And can I tell you, this is the second time Evangeline Lilly, who is an incredibly capable actress, who's a beautiful woman, who her character has just been, she has been cast in a role to be literally a fan-hated character. Because like, no one liked her when she was on Lost. They hated Kate. Uh, Everybody, I hate this character so much that I have blocked her name out. Like, I don't even... Uh, Tariel. Tariel, And here's the thing. She, in both of those times, she was not cast as that character. In Lost, she was supposed to be the leader. And in in literally specifically when she signed on for the Hobbit, she said, I do not want to be a love interest. And they were like, got it good. Okay. And the studio overruled them and they wrote the worst romance they possibly could have. And what would have made more sense for those characters, because having her crying over like hot dwarf, just like, I, I didn't care. I was done at that point. But if you had had his him die the one we've been made to care about and his brother crying over him and then his brother dying it would have been so much more impactful than having his brother who nobody knew about or cared about die then he's crying over him then he dies and then she's crying. it was just like oh my god what is happening right now i mean i will say there is one standout thing about these films and it is the pure camp that is lee pace in those yes that queen that the swooping away and <laughs> that six foot five queer dream of a human being who uh, may or may not have been dating Richard Armitage at the time they were filming it. Like they were spending a lot of time with each other's families. There's a whole, there's a whole theories behind that. They're very I close mean, friends. I, I also do love that. Like we have the sometimes out, sometimes not out Luke Evans in those movies as well right? in a great role. Um, Wonderful. He was fan- looking more like Orlando Bloom than Orlando Bloom did. Uh, absolutely. Oh, but also like good on them for bringing Orlando Bloom back and Orlando Bloom's like, I'm going to look just as good as I did in that first film. <laughs> Though those blue contacts, I was like, so you didn't need them in those first movies. Why are you wearing them now? Because they really, because they were cheap contacts and they inhibited his, uh, inhibited some of his acting moments, which was a shame. Um, Also, you could tell that like, I don't know if it was that he and Evangeline Lilly didn't get along or like what was happening, but like they were supposed to like intrinsically understand and like, know each other and like there was the lack of chemistry in any way shape or form between them i also feel like the studio went okay but what if we let people know that like dwarves can be hot right i mean and are all of those men incredibly handsome absolutely did i love that that i came out of the first movie or the second movie and goes 
am I into dwarves now? Is right. that a thing? Yeah. And I yeah. was like, well, you love a short king, so it's fine. Yeah, sure. Um, and, but I also feel like they were like, what if we didn't have crazy amounts of prosthetics on all of the dwarves? What if we right. had some young hot ones, young hot like dwarves. a leader who's like kind of handsome, but has a nose prosthetic and some, maybe a brow, but then the other guys that are just like crazy. Um, I feel like they were like, what if we did Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but like fun? Right, uh, right. The standout for me or like my favorite deep cut that like no one else is going to get unless you've seen the movie. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a movie in like the 90s, an Irish movie called Waking Ned Divine. Oh, uh, yes. I love yes. that movie. Okay. Great movie. So, so Pig Finn uh-huh. is one of the dwarves. Yes, and he, he had is. a moment with a pig. Like he made some comment about smelling like a pig or something like that in there. And I was like, this is, this is a reference to Wake Dead Divine. So, yeah, I love those moments. Now, I will say Morgan Freeman... Martin Freeman. Martin, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Martin, no, yeah. Morgan Freeman. That's a very different. That's a very different Bilbo. Could you imagine Morgan oh Freeman? Is? I'd fall asleep. I would fall asleep. Uh, no, oh, I mean man. Morgan Freeman as Gandalf <laughs> could be very cool. But I mean, sure, again, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we can. Now they let Ian McKellen do some crazy shit in these movies. Oh, um, yeah. Also, Sylvester McCoy, one of my favorite doctors from Doctor Who. Yeah. As as um oh god what can I remember he was he's Radagast the brown Radagast yes didn't so need all wonderful. the bird shit but like... didn't need all the bird shit um we didn't need the CGI animals but I understand because that's right, more right. practical than having animals but like those scenes with the wizards were, were, ah. were great um you know there was some really good stuff that you could tell was deeply rooted in some Cimmerillion background and some. Mm-hmm. And more so Gladriel. Those, more Gladriel. Really nice moments. Again, not enough Gladriel. And also, right. we get none of her like relationship or like background with Gandalf. Like they have a great like background together. I believe. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we at got, least like, in the movie, they said, I I'm assuming they researched that more in the yeah. like, to put in the movie, but they like they hinted at some stuff in the movies. Yeah. And I know we're getting more of that in the mm-hmm. new show, which again, I'm very. I didn't want to be excited and want to get my hopes up. Now I've gotten got my hopes well, and I up. hate that it's I hate that it's Amazon, but also like yeah. when the character posters came out with the, accept- and the level with, of detail. Oh God, and the wigs and everything. Okay, with the exception of like '90s boy band, is that Bilbo or Frodo? Frodo. Uh, just I the hair. I was just like. That's what that was the best we could do for him. That's right. the best we got yeah. for him. But like honestly, I mean, I'm always gonna bitch about something when it comes to cosmetology. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like again, and also like many of the aspects of the costumes and stuff, like I think they really focused on like what Bilbo was doing and like his everything. And like the dwarves look great, but I still there were a lot of moments where I was like, this feels a little Halloween store costumey. Like they again, um, the elves, I think, really is where it was for me that like um Oh, I always forget his name, but Daddy Elf, Lee Pace. Uh, Threnduil, yeah. Yeah, he looked great. I loved all the the, the the horns and everything. I also love that scene where his glamour drops. And so yes. figured and you're just like, oh, let's learn more about that. I right. want to know more about like, because that's the thing is like those moments of where they kind of touched on the elven trauma of the original War of Men is so important because again, they're the only ones who were there. There. 
and they're still who, there. Who like, remember it? Like, oh. and so, like, I did. I enjoy all three of those movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Did I enjoy some of them for the wrong reasons? Oh yes. By the end of the Battle of Five Armies, because I think that's what they called the last one, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was just the battle. It was the five page battle that was turned into was, a three hour By the time they get up to like the type of the icy mountain and it's just the orcs chasing or the Utrecht chasing the hobbits and like Keeley has been poisoned. And I'm just like, I keep going, how do we have another hour of this movie? Oh my God. When Legolas God. throws a sword and somehow it flies straight and, and like kills the guy. And I was like, that's not how physics work. And everyone's like elf magic. And I'm like, that's a bad, no, ex- that's a bad no. explanation. Also, there's very little straight about Legolas. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also that just doesn't, it, again, it is intrinsically not what feels elven to me and what feels middle earth middle earth is supposed to be grounded in our physics and our reality with the addition of magic Mm -hmm. and all of these things Tolkien again he calculated how far a hobbit stride would go and how far they could walk in a day that is intrinsic to Tolkien is being and not so much in the hobbit because that was an earlier book and whatever but like his world and if you're playing in that world and you're building off the world of lord of the rings should be that level of realism Mm -hmm. or committing to the physics of the world you've created Mm -hmm. and if you're not doing that or if you're waving it away with elf magic i'm gonna feel like it's cheap and i'm gonna be mad about it (laughs) like also we're you know the 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 thing i like about this world is like with the exception of the wizards who are few and far between um who have very tangible magic you know it's they still made the elves magic so tangible and so old that it feels so like intrinsically tied to the earth and and more about alamance and yeah it's not it's not fantasy it's folklore mm -hmm. and so like him being like i'm gonna throw and then use my mind that's not that's not this that's not what this is no um and you could just tell that he didn't have the same people behind him making these movies and and a a lot of people had died between the two films like i mean because it was almost a decade literally Mm -hmm. um so you know it's so anna for anyone that for some reason hasn't seen these on because i mean we've also had like tnt and tbs that would show all of these movies over weekends for years right. like these movies have been so heavily televised and so like so accessible you can and they've buy been on the, Amazon, they've been on hbo max and they've yeah, been on netflix they've been in streaming for long enough now that like if someone hasn't touched them or they've been you know we are at a point where we're discussing there are other fantasy franchises other than the transphobic wizarding world, which, you know, mm-hmm. I get, I I'm from the childhood generation of Harry Potter. Sure, so yeah, same. We, we have a different tie that like your memories do not make it inherently problematic. Right. It's the creator has made herself problematic, but you know, people are looking for alternatives and we have people reading for the first time because of the pandemic and things for people who have never visited this world or maybe watched it once but need to revisit it what would you say what is your selling point to get them back into this so it really comes down to the relationships for me and like the way that tolkien crafts his world even the stuff that people find like too much like he spends 30 pages talking about hobbits in the shire in the beginning but it's so rooted in like a love for the world and it's like it's a comforting for a for a story that is about like apocalyptic annihilation and trying to circumvent it it's one of the most comforting stories I've ever encountered in terms of the way he writes it and the way that they shot 
the films, it's this camaraderie. It's this sense of like, we overcome because we are human. We overcome because we love and not in the like love conquers all kind of way that we wound up seeing in the transphobic wizarding world. But like in this sense of like, we overcome by building community. We overcome by believing that the little person can take little steps that like little in terms of small in the scope of things. Um, the whole idea of like Sam being the one who's in the stories later, uh, what stories are they going to tell about Samwise the Brave or that that line, like, what are we holding on to? There's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for all of this. like, It's such an inspiring story of how people can come together in unprecedented times, which feels very relevant right now, and the way that they overcome is through their community and through their love for their land and for them, for their communities, um, their, their cultures, for each other, for the French friends they make along the way, um, overcoming their differences together. And there's a lot about these books that are dated, no question about it, a lot about these movies that are dated, but I truly do believe, based on what I've read of what Tolkien said, that if he lived today, he would be thrilled by this, the diversity of this new adaptation. Mm -hmm. He would be extremely willing to learn on a lot of social issues because he was at the time. Um, And that he just like, he, he created this world that's all about like, like wanting to preserve the things that are good rather than wanting to preserve the things that are traditional. It's just everything about it comes back to the characters and the people and the character work and, and, and like when you learn more about him, you recognize that it's it's his love for his the woman who became his wife and his love for like the English countryside that he spent his childhood in before his mother died and like his love for his mother and all of these things are so beautifully encapsulated in this story where where he just wanted to see the good and the ability of people to like overcome these horrific evils he was witnessing in the world. And that to me is like, that is what those movies are. And that is what the stories are. The, the sword fights are incredible. The, the CGI is incredible. The, you know, like it, it revolutionized film, no question about it. But, but at the end of the day, that's not the book he was writing. Mm-hmm. The book he was writing was like, here's why we should stop deforestation. Literally, there, there are so many sociopolitical like stories in this that again, I go, okay, they were poignant in 2002 when we had Al Gore talking about the inconvenient truth there so poignant now and i think there is that positivity is what we realized over the last few years is what we need and that's yeah. what's really been getting people through like i don't need a gritty pan am i don't need i don't need the grit i don't need a dark sexy witch universe it like no. did i enjoy the fuck out of it absolutely but like sure. i i want go some- back to well, I want something hopeful and fun, which is like, it sounds a little crazy. It's one of my favorite things about Stranger Things is like the hope in the kids and like the brightness at the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Sean Astin always being the purest being and everything. He, does. he should be <laughs> feelings, in everything. So many feelings. Uh, he should be in everything always. Uh, uh, and I just adore him so much. But yeah, I just, I think that positivity is what I really want people to take away and like the hopefulness. And the uh, joy, and- like, Boromir has like a bunch of lines that like another person who got underserved by the movies but like Boromir's whole thing about being like okay you have to let the hobbits be hobbits we have to like like find moments to find joy we have to train them to fight but it's like fun and like Mm -hmm. it's just everything about it is like we're we're not preserving 
I don't, we're not fighting for some cause. Like none of them are fighting for like a cause. They are fighting because they all want to see their people survive. Yeah. Like that's the whole point of the fellowship at the end of the day is it's like, these are people who inherently historically, like genetically are all opposed to each other. They are not like, no one in this world is a fan of anyone else. And that is why there's so much separation. Right. They were like connected at one point and then the Mm -hmm. last war pulled them apart and they all kind of blame each other for it. Mm -hmm. And they all have their opinions about each other. And then now they're all coming back together again. And it's, it's so delightful to see and the actors understood it in such a beautiful mm-hmm. way. I, I also like, we, we spend uh, always, a lot of people spend so much time. We focus on the hobbits, but also like Gimli and Legolas, like so good. Like, Their friendship. So good. So good. And, like it doesn't even get touched on in the movies, but like mm-hmm. in the books, they become friends to the point where like they spend like years going to all showing each other their favorite places around middle earth Mm -hmm. after they've survived the war and then Gimli becomes the only dwarf who's ever been Mm -hmm. taken to the undying lands because of his friendship with legolas because he's petitioned for like this person is so important to me however you want to read that which like again there's a lot of like a lot of queer representation you can read in there but also tolkien being so committed to this idea of like of like male camaraderie I'm like, like how wholesome male camaraderie. Well, and it's also with how tightly woven he was with his writing community and the artist Mm -hmm. community. He had to have been someone's confidant and he was incredibly progressive because anytime you like read like things like screw tape letters or anything like that's like, like, because you had C.S. Lewis who was so devoutly religious, right? uh, Open, but very open to things in a way that like modern evangelicals and Christians could really take a note from. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no way that Tolkien was not someone's confidant, did not know right. secretly queer people, especially because like queer people in the UK had their own culture and languages and things. And so like he was on he kind was of an all boys school and yeah, like <laughs> he, you know, you know that he had to have been in on that, but again, he doesn't talk, he didn't talk about it and didn't write about it because he was a comrade. He was a friend. And that was just something and so i just always have to assume people like that knew people and respected people right part of their circle and i mean because like you also have to think about the like he overlapped in the same time as like oscar wilde and people like right that. so, like, that's always one of those things i always expect oscar or uh, oscar wilde is so much earlier but then i was like no literally oscar wilde lived well into the middle of the the 20th century so like mm-hmm. and he went know, to theater like he he was so big in that like there was, it was an artist community and they had to have overlapped right. just things. They're like, it's one of those things that whether he was truly trying to be progressive at the time, it's interesting that like, we can look at these things that were written in the thirties, forties, fifties as far more progressive than any like queer. A lot of stuff we have now. Today. Yeah. Well, his representation of women, like this is a thing that I kind of have a soapbox about, which is like, yes, there's not enough. And there's not enough that is like, mm-hmm. like actively participating in like fighting back. But he was inspired by growing up in the countryside where like women did the dirty work, right? Like, yeah. like, like the farm and the farm wives did the dirty work. And then his mother, he admired her so much and she died very young. And then he developed this relationship with Edith, his wife, where they were like inseparable as children. They actually have such a better love story than the Tolkien movie gave them because it tried to Hollywoodize it. And I have a whole thing about that. But he, so much of his character is based on his love and respect for her. Mm-hmm. Like the whole Baron and Luthien storyline, which we're not going to get in the in this show because you can't do the Silmarillion feelings. 
is that like Luthien is the one who succeeds at getting the Silmaril be- when Baron fails and she succeeds by like being good and kind and like taming the demonic dog but still she is like a badass in her own right and all of his female characters are to a degree like there's not enough of them and they are certainly in gender roles a lot of the time AON notwithstanding but like he did not write the woman who like was the seductress to get what she wanted he did not write the woman who was like helpless he has so many characters in his lore that were like working within the means of their gender roles in a way that I find very empowering actually and you see so much of that or like when people pointed out going back to the transphobic wizard series uh when people pointed out to him that his dwarves read as anti-semitic he was horrified yeah he was like oh my god I did not I did not intend for that I can see like where those biases may have come in but like I do not condone that that mm. read of them and like and he did not actively try and perpetuate stereotypes as many right. as may or may not have made it in his text yeah so the last thing before we wrap up i want to talk about there is one other adaptation that we have not talked about of lord of the rings <laughs> and it is the musical oh that, exists, yes. that is a three and a half hour epic of i believe it's all three it's okay everyone you just have to like pause right now go search the like German run of Lord of the Rings, the musical, uh, because it is as a theater designer, one of the most ridiculously amazing things I've ever seen. And I really would love someone to produce this in the West and do a nice like stadium sit down for me because I need it because it's beautiful. The score is stunning. It looked cool. Like the two things I need, I need the German production of Lord of the Rings to be all over the world. And I need the German production of Starlight Express to be all over the world. Um, But yeah, it's, it's so interesting, but also to me, for some reason, the idea of a musical, especially that pulls the idea of like a classical fantasy sound over an orchestral musical theater sound actually really works because this piece has so much it, the feeling of opera and like large scale yes. in the way that yes. it's written, even though it's non-musical. I just, when the musical came out, I was like, oh, that's stupid. And then when I saw the video, I went, <gasps> it makes so yeah. much sense. It makes absolutely so much sense that it's like Galadriel singing and there's just so much beautifulness. Right. Um, that like, it just, I almost feel like that is the most appropriate adaptation yes. of the story. But like, also I'm like, how do you tell three books in right. one three and a half hour show? Um, you jump from plot point to plot point very quickly, I'm very sure. Very quickly, yeah. Oh, I'm very, very sure. Also, because there's certain things that they're like, we're not going to do that on stage because even we can't pull that off. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah bye. Uh, but that's just, just, I always want to talk about obscure musical theater things. So that's just a way to wedge everybody. Go watch it. Go obsess over Please. it. There are a ton of clips. And then I, you have to post on our social media what everybody thinks about it. So Yes. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank talking, you for talking having and me. Rings with me. Of course. So tell Love everyone to about this. Uh, of course. So tell everyone where they can find you on the internet space. So you can find me on pretty much every social media platform as at Anna Lionhearted. Um, I do have a TikTok that has been defunct since I did my Lord of the Rings, why my Lord of the Rings Tarot Sucks series. But if you want to watch that, I get very heated about it. I think you have to. I think everybody has to. I think everyone has to. And then you can also find uh, my writing and my work with the BTS Tarot Project at at BTS Tarot Project. 
um, because we are designing a fully artist done, like exploring shared symbolism between their music and and uh, and tarot and, and the occult, because what did I need when I entered my 30s, if not another like epic universe to dive of like camaraderie and like friendship and mm-hmm. and and symbolism to dive into now that Lord of the Rings is 20 years old. So it's true. Yeah. It's true. But I also feel like as someone who's also like recently gotten and in, gotten into it in my thirties, like fully embraced the, like the, the person that my mother told me never to be as an evangelical <laughs> child. I am now like a militant queer socialist, witch. so it's just oh, like, yes. ha 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 mother. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, but she's delightful now that she's come out of that, but yes. uh, yeah, no, but it's such an open, a wonderful welcoming community. It's, it's so lovely and delightful. And they're all really upset. Very certain things that people are very obsessed with. Lord of the Rings is one of them. Uh, Taman did his, 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 um, his concept photos last year for his, his solo Uh album. And I was looking at him and I was going, that sword looks really familiar. Oh, that's a very nice replica of Andrew Flame of the West. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Briar Moss. Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our Circle of Friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives! Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... Saturday Morning Confidential is brought to you by Dreamer Productions and is a proud member of the Certain POV Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook at Saturday Morning Confidential, on Instagram at SMC Pod, and on Twitter at The SMC Podcast. You can find all the shows that Certain POV has to offer at CertainPOV.com or also on Patreon at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of only $2 a month keeps constant programming coming in and supporting our new shows as we go throughout 2022. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.